Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. You know, here at Open Your Eyes, one of the most requested topics we get is how to be a better leader. And many of us, while we travel down the road in life, at some point turn around and look behind us, and we see others following on that same road. And we open our eyes to realize that we are leading. And it's easy to feel inadequate as a leader. So for these next few episodes, we're focusing on skills that will help us all lead better. And I hope today you hear something that can help you get a new view of your place as a leader and how you can help others live to their potential. And if you enjoy this podcast, please join us in our effort to reach more people and take a minute to share the link to this podcast with a friend. Send it to someone who might need a little encouragement. These few words and a new perspective could make a big difference for them as well. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about you becoming your team's chief inspiration officer. Eli Shripzak is an energetic 15-year-old from Appleton, Wisconsin, who loves Boy Scouts. His father is the local scout leader, and together they camp, enjoy the outdoors, and Learn the skills scouts learn when they're serious about scouting. The Boy Scout organization offers 135 merit badges to teach boys a variety of skills, ranging from architecture to cycling to disabilities awareness to first aid and more. And since the beginning of scouts in 1910, only 367 scouts have earned all the merit badges available. The most recent to earn all the merit badges was Jeffrey Nebaker of Frisco, Texas. The last merit badge he earned? Bugling. Well, Eli loves scouting, and he, his father, eight adults, and 15 scouts decided to go on a backcountry excursion in New Mexico, a long way from their home in Wisconsin. The trip was amazing. They camped and hiked through the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, and the boys saw a part of the country they might not ever see in their lifetime. And when it came time to return home, They boarded an Amtrak train that was en route from Los Angeles to Chicago. Traveling on Amtrak can be an adventure, especially for young teenagers. The observation car on the train is especially amazing. It consists of two important levels, the cafe on the first level and the observation deck on the second. There you can sit like Eli did, facing the massive windows, wait for your food, and take in the grandeur of the landscape that is rolling by. Well, that day, Eli and his fellow scouts were joined by 230 other passengers and 12 crew members. And just after noon, the train was speeding through Missouri, just north of Columbia, and the trip had thus far been uneventful. One scout had downloaded the Amtrak app and saw that the train was traveling about 90 miles per hour. And unbeknownst to the passengers, up ahead on the track was a large dump truck trying to navigate a railroad crossing. The truck's driver, 53-year-old Billy Barton, was delivering a load of rocks, and he was driving an old 2007 Kenworth dump truck. The road he was traveling was a dirt road, and the crossing across the tracks was elevated and uneven, and the crossing didn't have train-activated signals to warn of an approaching train, and the grade leading to the crossing was steep, and even local residents claimed it impacted the visibility of passing trains. Well, some people believe that as Billy went across the tracks, his weighed-down truck 
didn't have the clearance to travel over the uneven crossing, and the truck became stuck as a result. Well, in the moment his truck became hung up on the crossing, the Amtrak train, powered by two locomotives, was barreling down the track toward him. And by the time the train system signaled danger ahead, there was little time to react or stop. Now, Amtrak has had its share of accidents. In 1993, an Amtrak train derailed on the Big Bayou Bridge near Mobile, Alabama. Immediately prior to the derailment, a large barge had made a wrong turn on the Mobile River, and the barge pilot was not trained on how to read radar, and there was heavy fog, and the barge lacked a compass and a chart of the waters. Well, the barge struck the bridge at 2.45 a.m. and damaged the bridge, causing a displacement span on the bridge, which kinked the tracks. Eight minutes later, at 2.53 a.m., an Amtrak train powered by three locomotives traveling from L.A. to Miami, Florida, with 220 passengers aboard, crossed the bridge at 70 miles per hour. And when the train hit the displaced span of track, the bridge collapsed and the lead locomotive slammed into the riverbank and the other locomotives, the baggage car, the sleeping cars, and two passenger cars, plunged into the water. In total, 47 people died, most by drowning or smoke inhalation from the fires that happened on impact. And ironically, the train had been delayed by 30 minutes due to repairs to an air conditioner and toilet. And without this delay, this accident wouldn't have happened. On December 11, 1990, an Amtrak train departed Washington, D.C. at 10.30 p.m. and was scheduled to arrive in Boston at 8.35 a.m. And as the train approached Back Bay Station, it was approaching a triple-track tunnel. Now, the maximum speed to safely travel in the tunnel without leaning into other trains is 30 miles an hour. But the Amtrak train entered the tunnel going 76 miles per hour. Well, the locomotive left the tracks, struck a commuter train, and 453 people were injured. Upon review, it was revealed that the Amtrak train was behind schedule and that the engineer took the train to speeds over 100 miles an hour. It was later revealed also that the engineer was still learning how to operate the train. Well, inside that train in Missouri a few months ago, Eli was playing on his phone and dozing on and off when the train struck the dump truck. He awoke, opened his eyes to a giant jolt. He felt a quick moment of rough bumps, and then his train car overturned onto its side, causing Eli to fall onto his fellow scouts who had been sitting across the aisle from him. The side of the train became the new floor upon which they were standing. When the train struck the dump truck, both locomotives pulling the train derailed. Then every train car followed in turn. Those in the passenger cars absorbed the force of the accident, taking them from 90 miles an hour to almost an immediate stop and flipping the train cars in the process. Well, after crashing, Eli and his fellow scouts tried to collect their wits. Everything had been slammed from one end of the car to the other. Some were injured, some confused, others without shoes, but Eli started to make sure they were all accounted for. He said, the adrenaline kicked in and something took over and I just knew what to do. Well, first, the scouts secured passengers who may have had spinal cord injuries, then helped the passengers evacuate the train cars. They helped people out of the windows and carried them down to the ground. They helped families, carried kids, and started to administer first aid to the injured. Can you picture it? A group of scouts putting into practice what they had learned 
and caring for hundreds of injured passengers. While all of this was going on, Eli ran to the front of the train to see if anyone was injured. And when he saw the wheels and axle of the dump truck, he realized the train had struck a vehicle. As he looked around, he spotted a man who turned out to be the driver of the truck in a nearby ditch. The driver had been ejected upon impact. When Eli got to him, he could tell he was hurt bad. He was bleeding, and although he was breathing, his breathing was more of a gurgling sound. As Eli tried to stop the bleeding, he told the man, help is on the way. And Eli held his hand and tried to comfort him. Soon a local farmer joined Eli, and they kept up their efforts until emergency crews arrived. But the driver didn't survive. After turning the care of the driver to the emergency crews, Eli pinballed between fire trucks and the crash site, helping to resupply paramedics. The scouts cared for the injured and their injured scout leaders and the dying until the site was eventually cleared. When all was said and done, Eli was visibly upset that he couldn't have done more. A highway patrolman told him he had done everything he could have possibly done. There was nothing he could have done more to save the driver. Well, on that day, in a Missouri field, Eli and his fellow scouts lived the scout oath. Every scout, including me, learned that oath. It says, On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country, to obey the scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. Now, when I first learned the scout law, it didn't contain the phrase to help other people at all times. That was added later. And it was a critical part of the oath and guiding force for Eli as he worked to fulfill that oath and to walk the talk that day in Missouri. You see, there's something incredibly inspirational about Eli doing what he made an oath to do. That's what happens with leaders. They inspire by who they are, the goals they keep, and the actions they take. And when they do what they say they will do, when they do their duty, they inspire. Leadership is what you inspire others to do. And nowadays, we hear a lot of three-letter titles, CEO, Chief Executive Officer, CMO, Chief Marketing Officer, or CFO, Chief Financial Officer. But perhaps the most important title is CIO, not Chief Information Officer, but rather Chief Inspiration Officer. And I've learned being inspiring is one of the most important roles and duties any leader can fulfill. And to inspire isn't just about what you say, it is about what you both say and do. Now, some of you are leading a team right now. And when I get a chance to talk with a few of you, one of your most oft asked questions is, McKay, how do I get my team members to do what they say they will do? Well, the answer to that question often lies in seeing your role as chief inspiration officer, as inspiring them to higher levels of performance. As a young man, my dad was inspiring, not because of what he said. In fact, my father said very little. He was inspiring by what he did. My father had credibility with me, and I trusted what he said because of what he did. When I was a young man, I borrowed my friend's Jeep and drove to a girl's house. And this was all well and good, but I didn't have my driver's license. I turned onto her street and was driving into the sun. And as a result, I didn't have a clear view of what was ahead of me. And when I turned left, I turned directly into the path of an oncoming car. We hit head on. Well, I smashed my head and mouth on the steering wheel and the two passengers in the other car went to the hospital. 
Well, I waited there next to the crash for the police to arrest me and my father to arrive. And quite frankly, I wanted the police to arrest me and take me away so I didn't have to face him. But my father arrived, asked me how I was and what happened. We then went to the hospital where I got 20 stitches in my mouth. It was quite painful. And during all of that, my father said very little. On the way home in the car, I couldn't tell whether he felt sorry for me or he was upset at the mistake that I had made. And I was feeling awful about what I had done. When we turned onto the street where we lived, he said to me, I hope you learned a lesson today. And he left it at that. My dad inspired me that day by the way he tempered his reaction to my mistake. He was there for me when I needed it most in a way that allowed me to rise on my own. And I eventually did rise because I wanted him to be proud of me. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, trust men and they will be true to you. Treat them greatly and they will show themselves great. This leads to the first lesson of being a chief inspiration officer. And this is very important. Trusted leaders have credibility. Think about it. To really follow someone, they must be credible so you can put weight in what they say. And credibility is largely made up of two important characteristics. Do you know what they are? The first is capability. Think about it. Can you trust or follow a person that doesn't have the capability or bring along the capability needed? No. Now, you could use the word competence instead of capability. If I were to ask you to come along and follow me to a certain destination, but I didn't know how to get there, you'd soon stop following, right? If I want you to join me in building a business, then you need to have faith that I know how or my support team knows how to help you succeed. And you could extend this even further. Even if you are not entirely competent today, if your team sees you engaged in learning all you can to become competent, they will more likely place their trust in you. This is such an obvious principle, but so often overlooked by leaders. That by improving, by creating more competence, others begin to trust you more. Competence creates confidence. And that's true for confidence in yourself as well. Well, the second characteristic necessary for building your credibility is character. Think about it. You can be incredibly competent, but if you don't have the character, if your team or children can't trust that you will do what you say you will do, then you will not be credible. They won't trust you. In fact, I believe of all the things that bring about self-confidence, credibility as a leader and confidence in that leader, doing what you say you will do is the most important. Not long ago, researchers at the University of Kentucky were studying the causes and potential solutions to the state's fight against childhood obesity, and they learned something incredibly insightful. You see, in North America, 25 years ago, about 12% of the children were classified as obese. Today, that number is almost 20%. And in Kentucky, 38% of children, 10 to 17 years of age, are overweight or obese. And projections say that by the year 2030, in our country, one quarter of our kids will be obese. What are the outcomes of childhood obesity? Well, they're severe, increased risk for heart disease, other serious health risks, and a host of cancers. And of course, of concern is the psychological health impacts as well. What is the cause of childhood obesity? Well, fast food diet, lack of exercise, socioeconomic factors, and other factors as well. 
The Kentucky researchers delved into these issues surrounding childhood obesity and wanted to discover how to reverse the trends in their state. And what they already knew is that this is a complex phenomenon influenced by biological and behavioral factors. Now, in research, rarely do you find one factor, one prevailing factor that can reverse or change a complex trend such as childhood obesity. But in this case, these researchers found the one thing that can and does reverse something as complex as childhood obesity. And what was that one thing? It was mothers and fathers who encouraged their children to exercise and eat well while doing it themselves. Children who had parents who walked the talk were significantly more likely to do the same. The study showed that both saying and doing on the part of parents had great power to influence the children. And this is true in almost every situation. Saying and doing has great power. Now, why is that? Well, numerous studies over the years have shown that to both say and do does something in our own psyche and in the minds of others as well. Years ago, two researchers from the University of Florida developed an integrity scale, and this scale has been used in numerous studies ever since. The integrity scale measures the degree that a person does what they say they will do. That was the definition of integrity. And this scale has been used to test a large number of highly correlated factors. So what things are correlated with or result from doing what you say you will do? Personal happiness is a result. Confidence, influence, improved interpersonal relations, higher academic achievement, higher relationship satisfaction, lower divorce rates, higher income, and the list goes on. You see, our brains and emotional management systems are made to expect congruency, meaning that expectation and outcomes are congruent or aligned. And when outcomes are not congruent with expectations, we experience dissonance or tension of feeling or anxiety. And you see, much of the anxiety we experience in our life is due to the fact that things are not congruent. These gaps between expectation and results are often the root cause of many issues in our behavior and mental well-being. When we personally have gaps between our values and what we do, we experience dissonance or anxiety. It robs us of our strength. Likewise, when we don't walk our talk, it robs our teams of their strength. It robs us of our leadership influence. That's why leaders who do what they say inspire others because others have a sense of peace about following a leader who is congruent. You know, years ago, I became friends with the founder of the Franklin Quest Company, Hiram Smith. We were both passionate about the reality and role that belief windows play in our life. And before his passing in 2019, we worked together on a book called The Three Gaps. Hiram said there are three gaps that, if we could learn to close those gaps, we would find inner peace and greater strength in life. The first gap is the gap between what we believe to be true and what is actually true. The second is the gap between what we value and what we do. And the third is the time gap between what we want to do today and what we actually end up doing. In the foreword to the book, the reader is reminded of George Bernard Shaw's story entitled Man and Superman. And in that story, the hero, Don Juan, is sent to hell and is given a choice to return to heaven. But the devil is trying hard to keep him in hell. 
In the end, Don Juan chooses to leave his comforts and return to heaven. And when the devil asks him why, he replies, To be in hell is to drift. To be in heaven is to steer. Likewise, when we don't do what we say we will do, we feel adrift, and so do our kids and our teams. But when we do what we say, we start to steer. Next, chief inspiration officers seek to inspire as a way to serve to help others. You know, much of electricity is generated by burning coal, and the byproduct of coal-fired plants is coal ash. Nowadays, coal ash is used to make concrete and bricks and wallboards, but in the early 1900s, ash from coal furnaces and power plants was collected and dumped into ponds. For example, in the northern part of Queens, New York, you'll find Flushing Meadows. Flushing Meadows used to be exactly that, meadows and wetlands along the Flushing River. But in 1910, Michael Degnan contracted with the Brooklyn Ash Removal Company to dump the ash carried by train cars from various parts of New York into the meadows. After a while, there was just a large collection of ash and dirt. Well, what do you do with that? Well, Robert Moses, the New York Parks Commissioner, conceived the idea of developing a large park on top of the dirt and ash. And when his idea started to gather momentum, it was determined the park would be the site of the 1939 World's Fair, and Flushing Meadows was born. Today, Flushing Meadows or Corona Park is home to City Field, the home of the New York Mets, the Queens Museum, the New York Hall of Science, the Queens Zoo, and the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. Now, I was there at the Tennis Center a few weeks ago for the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. Inside that 46-acre tennis center are 22 courts and three stadiums. The largest is Arthur Ashe Stadium, named after the famous African-American tennis player Arthur Ashe. The stadium, opened in 1997, has 23,000 seats, five restaurants, and 90 luxury suites, and it is the largest tennis venue in the world. Now, a number of incredible and memorable moments have happened inside Arthur Ashe Stadium. One of my favorites happened in 2009. Now, nearly a decade before that, Kim Kleisters of Belgium had risen to tennis stardom. But as time went on, however, she faltered and injuries would take her out of competition in 2005 after she won the U.S. Open. Her entire life had revolved around tennis and she found herself uninspired and exhausted, and she retired from tennis. She had simply lost the fire needed to compete at the highest level. Then three years later, in 2008, she gave birth to her daughter, and shortly after, she also lost her father to lung cancer. Well, in 2009, with her father's death weighing on her mind, she started to think about a comeback. Her father had built her first tennis court, and he loved tennis and found joy in it. And he was her coach for a number of years. And she realized that he and God had given her a gift. And she wanted to give the same gift to her daughter, to see her mom trying and working to reach her potential. She wanted to inspire. Well, armed with this new sense of purpose, she asked for a wildcard entry to the U.S. Open and showed up as an unranked player. Now, she had won the Open in 2005, but it was four years later, and she was not in playing shape, and other players like Serena Williams and Venus Williams and Maria Sharapova and Justine Hennon and others dominated the court. 
How could Kim, so many years removed from tennis, even compete against these athletes? Well, the women's tournament consists of eight sections of 16 players each. And these players compete with the winners advancing to the next round. Kleisters was placed in section six, opposing Venus Williams. And she went on to beat Venus in a tough three-set match. Then she went on to beat Li Na from China and face Serena Williams. She won despite the odds. And after beating Serena, she then faced and beat Caroline Wozniacki to win the championship. Kleisters was the first unseated player and mother to win the U.S. Open. She's inspired thousands of moms since who see that nothing is more powerful than a mom who wants to inspire her kids. And the same goes for you. Nothing is as powerful as you when you decide to be the chief inspiration officer of your house or team or life. Kim rose to a different type of tennis player when she decided to play to inspire rather than play for herself. Another tennis player learned a similar lesson. For years, Andre Agassi was an eight-time major champion and Olympic gold medalist. His career was full of tremendous highs and lows, which included drug use. But Andre rose beyond his personal weaknesses to overcome and prevail in his life. Finally, at the 2006 U.S. Open, way past his prime and full of a new perspective on what is important in life, Andre lost a four-set match before the crowd in Arthur Ashe Stadium. And after the match, he famously said, The scoreboard said I lost today, but what that scoreboard doesn't say is what I have found. Over the last 21 years, I found inspiration. You have willed me to succeed, sometimes even in my lowest moments. I found generosity. You've given me your shoulders to stand on to reach my dreams, dreams I could have never reached without you. And over the last 21 years, I have found you. And I will take you and the memory of you with me for the rest of my life. So what will you find on your journey as a leader? As you look at your family or team right now, let me ask you, what is your team craving? Do they crave your example? Do they need connection, reliability, appreciation, skills, effective communication? What are they seeking and how can you inspire them? Now remember, to be more inspiring, open your eyes to this fact. The people on your team and in your family aren't just people. They are gifts. And it's the leader's job, your job, to nurture those gifts. It's funny, when you take this view, you get inspired. You'll be inspired on how to help them. You'll inspire them on how to rise to their potential. And the way you lead will change. Another key trait of inspiring leaders is this. They share in the sacrifice. If there's work to be done, if there's a price to be paid, inspiring leaders are there paying that price. You know, one of the reasons I'm a devout Christian is the simple example of the leader himself. Most Christians believe that Jesus Christ was, in fact, a divine being, a creator, long before he showed up here on earth. And the reason he did condescend from his place as the Son of God to this earth was to help show us, by his example, how to live. The Bible we read nowadays is organized into verses, and these verses allow us to reference different scriptures easily. The shortest verse in all of scripture is this, Jesus 
wept. In those two words, we learn so much. We learn that he knows firsthand the pains and experiences we have in life and that he has wept with us, that he weeps with those that he loves. And as a result, he knows how to help us. He empathizes fully with us and he shares in the sacrifices we make to improve and become better. This is an incredibly powerful principle. As a result, it's easy for me to put my trust in him. And you may wonder, like me from time to time, how so many people can be inspired by a man who lived 2,000 years ago on earth that we've never seen. The answer? Because he first loved and served us. He shared in the sacrifice to help us rise to become who we are meant to become. So, in your next team meeting or family meeting that you attend, imagine yourself wearing a new badge, a new title, Chief Inspiration Officer. Your new role on your team is to inspire. Your business card, everything else changes. Your job is to inspire and lift those around you. Open your eyes and see that you are the chief inspiration officer of your family. And when you do, you will also feel drawn to walk the talk, to do what you say you will do. You will want your team and your life to have less gaps, to be congruent. Remember, both character and competence are necessary for your credibility as a leader. Seek to improve both. And follow the example of Kim Clijsters. Play to inspire. And like Agassi, you'll find more than you ever give. And share in the sacrifice. Lead by giving and doing and relating fully to those you lead. And your influence will increase and your leadership will be more inspiring. Most of all, thanks for joining us today. And be sure to join us next week as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.